0: Hi everyone, David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice, and we continue our summer hiatus here with a look back at episode 101. That was my conversation with Professor Ronald Wright of Wake Forest University Law School. I had talked with him before about his Jury Sunshine project, the project in which he and several colleagues and many librarians from Wake Forest went to courthouses all over the state of North Carolina to find out just what was happening when juries were selected in their state. Uh, we've got the first Final results in in this episode that's episode 101 Uh, and the title of the episode is fittingly the real impact of juror exclusion we hope you like it here is my conversation with professor Ron Wright about his project jury service is the way that members of the public participate in the criminal justice system but who gets to serve Are certain racial or ethnic groups excluded? And what's the effect of these exclusions in the courtroom? An update on the groundbreaking Jury Sunshine Project. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your host and resident criminal justice geek, back with you to talk about our chaotic and confusing criminal justice system. Still glad beyond belief to have that day job as law professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law on March 20th of 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in the case of Flowers versus Mississippi. Flowers is a case in which an African-American defendant accused of four murders has been to trial six times since those crimes, which occurred in 1996. Jury selection is the issue in the Flowers case. When jurors are selected in criminal cases, judges can dismiss jurors for cause, for bias toward one side or the other revealed in answers to questions those potential jurors are asked. And jurors can also be dismissed by the lawyers for either side using what are called peremptory challenges. These are chances for each side to strike a given number of jurors without giving any reason. The juror just hits the lawyer wrong, gave the lawyer a funny look, or there's some reason the lawyer doesn't want this potential juror, but it doesn't rise to the level that it would take to get the judge to exclude the juror for cause, for bias. Lawyers for both sides can strike a predetermined number of jurors, with the idea being that the result will be an overall fair cross-section of the community, since both sides are using these no-reason-given peremptory strikes. But there are some very basic and important limits. Lawyers cannot use peremptory strikes on the basis of race. The case of Batson versus Kentucky does not allow race-based strikes. It violates the Constitution to do that. Here's some audio taken from a video posted to YouTube by the Conservative Federalist Society. Professor John Steinford explains Batson here and the three main reasons for the Batson anti-racial exclusion rule. And he does it in just under a minute. Here it is. The background music is in the original. Take a listen.
1: In Batson versus Kentucky, the Supreme Court ruled that it violates the Equal Protection Clause for a prosecutor to exclude a juror from the jury solely based on that juror's race. Racially discriminatory exclusion of individuals from the jury caused three basic types of harm. Um, Number one, it denies the defendant the right to be tried by a jury of their peers. Um, Defendants don't have the right to have jurors of their own race, but they do have the right to have the jury be drawn from a fair cross-section of the community which uh, needs to include members of that race. The second harm is that racial discrimination in jury selection um, actually violates the right of the prospective juror to serve on a jury. Finally, racially-based exclusions undermine both the perception and the actuality that the justice system is fair and colorblind.
0: Okay, so when one side's lawyer, almost always the defense in a criminal case, alleges that the prosecution has used race to strike jurors, the lawyer who used the strikes, the prosecutor, has to state a race neutral reason for the strikes. And in one of the six trials of the Flowers case, the guilty verdict was reversed for exactly this reason. The prosecutor used peremptory strikes on a racial basis. It was reversed for other types of prosecutorial misconduct in two of the other trials, and there were hung juries in two others. Now, if you're counting, that's five trials, and in this case, the sixth, the defense now argues that the prosecutor again violated Batson. And over all six of the trials, the prosecutor used peremptory strikes to exclude black jurors, 4.4 times more often than he did to exclude white jurors. That's the issue in Flowers. Did this violate the Batson standard in the sixth and last trial, as the prosecutor seems to have done in all of the others? Now, here at Criminal Injustice, this use of race in jury selection Put us in mind of a show we did two years ago in 2017. That was episode 45 when we heard about a new initiative called the Jury Sunshine Project in North Carolina. The project's leader, Professor Ron Wright, talked to us about the project, what it hoped to, uh, to accomplish, and he gave us some preliminary findings. Those preliminary results mirrored some of the issues in the Flowers case race, he told us, seemed to be playing a central role in jury selection. With flowers to be decided during this Supreme Court term and with the jury sunshine project now two years down the road and with fleshed out findings in hand, we decided this was a good time for another conversation about that project. And so let me introduce to you Professor Ron Wright. He is the Needham Yancey Gully Professor of Law at Wake Forest University School of Law in North Carolina. Professor Wright is one of the foremost researchers, writers, and scholars in the area of criminal law and criminal procedure. In addition to the two casebooks he has co-authored, he has done some of the most important empirical work on prosecutors, a world largely impervious to to data-based study. Along with Wake Forest Law colleagues Cammie Chavis and Gregory Parks, he's turned his considerable intellect and critical eyes to juries creating the Jury Sunshine Project, a database on the jury selection process covering all 100 counties in North Carolina. He wrote a great piece for the New York Times about the results, too. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Professor Ron Wright, welcome back to Criminal Injustice.
2: Thanks, David. It's great to be here. I love coming on to Criminal Injustice and talking about research out in the world.
0: Well, that's great. We're glad you're back. Uh, Let's just backtrack a little for those of us who uh, haven't had a chance to hear you before on the subject of juries. Why do you study juries Uh, since so many cases end in plea bargains, never see a jury, never go to trial? What's the point of studying what juries do?
2: Well, there are a few reasons. One of them is that those trials, even though they're quite few, they do influence all of those plea bargains happening because the parties are trying to guess what might happen at a trial. So knowing about how juries are selected in those trials will affect affect all the other cases. It'll have ripple effects back up into the system. It's also an important, the jury is also a very important link between the community and the criminal justice system. And if the jury is working properly, it will convince the people that, you know, criminal justice matters are being administered well in, you know, in line with their wishes in their local court system. It's It's an important trust builder.
0: And as we involve the community in the law, it does seem to me that uh, you want to get this right. You want to make sure that people understand the process works fairly and that everybody gets to participate.
2: Yeah, that's right. In fact, the, the framers of the Constitution had in mind that there are two big things that citizens can do to participate in government. One of them is vote and one of them is serve on a jury. And they have very similar functions.
0: So take us to North Carolina to jury selection there. And in general, uh, I described some of it, as you heard in the introduction uh, about how it works. Uh, Is that about how it works in North Carolina? Give us a give us a brief sketch.
2: Yeah, that is the way it works in North Carolina. Uh, The people who are called to the courthouse for jury duty are drawn from the list of registered voters in the state, supplemented by the list of licensed drivers in the state. And the clerk of the court randomly picks out people from those two lists living in the county, calls them into the courtroom, and then from there it's the process that you described. Somebody's – or 12 of those people are put into the jury box. The judge or maybe sometimes the lawyers will ask questions and then the judge removes some people for cause and the lawyers get to remove a certain number of jurors. In North Carolina, it's six jurors each. Uh, They get to remove those for, you know, for no reason at all for peremptory on a peremptory basis.
0: Okay, so the judge can remove some for cause, the lawyers remove them on that peremptory basis, and that's where that case Batson versus Kentucky comes in, and there are many reasons that it might be acceptable to uh, remove somebody for uh for peremptory with excuse me, with peremptory challenges and a few reasons that you cannot use peremptory challenges. I think I said race, are there others
2: too? Uh, There's also gender. The court has said that uh, you cannot remove a juror based on their gender. And a few courts are debating various uh, various religious affiliations. Uh, It's probable that you can't remove a juror based on his or her religion.
0: Okay, so there you are a few years ago uh, in the faculty offices of Wake Forest School of Law. And your colleagues, uh, Professor Chavis and Professor Parks, uh, you're all sitting around. Uh, how did you come up with this idea of uh, of looking at juries? And what 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 did you have to do to gather the data?
2: Well, we wanted to do some field research, and we knew that nobody had ever assembled a portrait of jury selection on a statewide basis. We knew that there were a couple of smaller, you know, two or three county studies. And we knew that there were studies of specialized cases, especially capital cases, but there was no overall portrait of how juries are selected in felony cases for an entire state over a period. So we decided we would do that.
0: And that decision takes you into the uh, the realm of the practical. You have to gather up the data in order to do that. Uh, what was that process like? Uh, and I guess I'm asking to some extent, what's the picture of North Carolina courthouses and record keeping and so forth? How did you manage this? What did you do?
2: Well, little did we know that this is a world where paper still matters. So we couldn't just <laughs> go to some centralized Uh, you know, electronic database, we had to go out, drive out to 100 different county courthouses around the state and ask the clerk of the court to show us the paper files for every case that went to trial during our designated year, uh, 2011, uh, and take notes based on that file about what happened during the jury selection. So... Uh, Professor Chavis and Professor Parks and I each went out. We also had students, both law students and undergraduate students, who we trained and then sent them out. We had law librarians who got on the road for— Ah, uh, the librarians. uh, the librarians were uh, our best our best friends our, we We sent them to the toughest counties because uh, they were uh, dogged in their pursuit of transparent records for the public
0: I can believe that you know my favorite folks uh, in my building at my law school. Uh, for helping me get things done is, my, is our library staff they are just terrific those they really understand the importance of information so you were lucky to have them on your team so you you get this information together, paper pads and pens, and you put together a database for the year two thousand eleven. What's in the
2: database? Well, we know from the database uh, who the judge was, who the prosecutor was, who the defense attorney was. We know the names of each of the jurors who were proposed for service, and we know whether they served or whether somebody removed them. Most of the time, we know who removed them, which of the parties, although the clerks didn't always record that, but mostly we know who removed them. We know uh, their zip code, where the jurors live, and for most of them, we know uh, their uh, their race and gender and age.
0: Okay. So that gives you a lot of information, a lot of possibilities. Who's removing the jurors?
2: Well, everybody's removing some, but they're, the the judges and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys are removing different people. So overall, about 57% of the jurors are staying on the jury. They're actually... You know, serving on the jury when they're called up to the front of the room, and then the remainder, about 40 to 43 percent, are removed by somebody. As far as who's getting removed, the prosecutors tend to remove uh, uh, African American jurors at a higher rate than the uh, white jurors who are sitting on the, in the jury box. Uh, On the other side of the equation, the defense attorneys tend to remove uh, white jurors at a higher rate than they remove uh, African American jurors. The judge is somewhere in the middle, as you might expect, although the judge tends to remove uh, African-American jurors or other race, other non-white jurors at a slightly higher rate, about 20 percent higher than, uh, than the judge would remove white jurors.
0: And do these removals by race, does it depend uh, any on the race of the defendant?
2: Only a little bit. I mean, this pattern holds true across uh, cases where there's a black defendant, where there's a white defendant, where there's a Hispanic defendant. So the the pattern is pretty powerful across all of those cases, but it is the the pattern in both directions is a little bit stronger when there is a uh, an African-American defendant.
0: I see. So it seems like you're saying race is really the chief factor or the most uh, impactful factor uh in terms of who gets to serve.
2: Yeah, at least among the the only the very small handful of things that we know about each juror, race tells us uh, you know, gives us a pretty good basis for predicting what's going to happen with that juror.
0: Oh, so, okay, so the the juror's race predicts pretty well what will happen. What happens when the trial starts?
2: Well, once the trial starts, uh, we also uh, have been able to analyze the performance of those juries. Uh, we've been working with Bran Flanagan, who's a, an econometrician here at Wake Forest, uh, and we know uh, that jurors that have more white males on the panel are more likely to convict across all types of defendants, but especially for African-American defendants. And we know that juries that have more members who are African-American males are measurably more likely to acquit defendants. And again, that effect is stronger when there's a an African-American defendant. So the composition of the of the jury panel ends up affecting their uh, their average performance
0: that is a very important finding. It seems to me that that the composition of the jury by race affects acquittal rates um,
2: go ahead yeah and the, and there's one other interesting factor here. earlier research had found that uh, that including two or more African-American jurors on a panel had a pretty big effect, a bigger effect than a single African-American or minority juror on the panel. And the idea would be that having two non-white jurors on the panel kind of uh, convinces those jurors to uh, hold on to their beliefs uh, maybe more strongly than they would if they were there alone.
0: Kind of the critical mass idea.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so other other research had found that, and we we found confirmation for that in our uh, in our data that was statewide across all different types of felonies.
0: So who gets to serve turns out to be important from at least two points of view. From what you're saying, uh, number one, if our Constitution writers looked at jury service as one of the two most important ways that citizens can participate in government, uh, not having as many black jurors hits at their participation in government, their ability to affect things uh, in the in the judicial system and their ability perhaps to have faith in it. And then it also uh, has a direct effect on the results of trials. That's pretty dramatic. Both of those things
2: yeah I, I agree and and I'd love to be able to measure the first of those two uh, because i I do imagine and there's some psychological studies to suggest this on on an experimental basis that people who believe that they're not welcome in the administration of the system are less likely to trust it hey if you're knocking me and all of the people I know from my community if you're knocking us all out of a jury or knocking us out at a higher rate then what's going on in there why aren't you why don't you want me to take part in this I don't trust the system as much.
0: That's so interesting. It's a close cousin to some of the literature that I've just been rereading on procedural justice. This, of course, pertains to police service, basically. uh, And it says that basically if you treat people with dignity and respect vis-a-vis the system, even when they're on the wrong end of it, say a police arrest, Um, they tend to have more of a feeling that the system is legitimate if they are heard, if they're treated correctly, if they're treated according to the rules. Uh, This seems to be kind of similar to me in that if you're keeping certain people out, they're going to look at the judicial system and maybe all of government uh, with a, a much more cynical eye.
2: Yeah, you're right. That uh, Those findings from the police context also do translate over into the court context where people feel better about the outcome, even if it's a conviction, even if it's an outcome that they don't favor. They feel better about the outcome if they feel like they were heard, that the process was explained to them, that, uh, that they can participate.
0: Well, let's take a quick break here. We're with Ron Wright. He's at Wake Forest University School of Law, and he is one of the leaders of the Jury Sunshine Project. Stay with us. We'll be right back. David Harris with you here on Criminal Injustice, and our guest on this episode is Ron Wright. He's a member of the faculty at Wake Forest University School of Law, and along with his two colleagues, Cammie Chavis and Gregory Parks, uh, he has uh, created the Jury Sunshine Project, a project that has collected data from all 100 counties in North Carolina and put out some really Uh, Amazing and insightful results that indicate that race is the factor that determines who serves and has a direct impact on acquittal rates. That's what we were just talking about before the break. Let me ask a related question. Does the race of the decision maker uh, have any impact here? Uh, Were you able to determine from your data whether the race of the judge, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, whether those things had any effect?
2: Uh, Based on the North Carolina data, we found that the race of the judge did not have any effect. You get the same pattern regardless of the gender or the race of the judge. And the race of the prosecutor uh, did not have an effect, whether it be the uh, the black or white uh, prosecutor, also the gender of the prosecutor didn't matter. You get the same pattern of jury selection, regardless of those demographics for the prosecutor. But when you get to the defense attorney, it's interesting, while the the Strong exclusion of white jurors was true across all defense attorneys. It was even more true of African American defense attorneys, and it was even more true of defense attorneys with more experience. So, the longer you've been in the business as a defense attorney, the more likely you are to exclude white jurors at a higher rate than black jurors.
0: That is so interesting. As a person who uh, was briefly a prosecutor and much more uh, for much longer time a defense attorney. I can see that. I mean, you'd get to the point where you're looking for jurors who, who might uh, uh, have uh, ideas about government conduct, police conduct, things like that. Uh, they might be willing to look for jurors that tell them in their experience that they'd be more willing to acquit. And that's what it seems defense attorneys are doing using the proxy of the jurors' race.
2: Yeah, and this gets at the question of the intent of the parties. This study really can't allow us to draw any conclusions about why a particular attorney removes a particular juror. We're not really addressing intent here. It's just that the attorneys only know a very few things about these jurors, and one clue that they have is race. And I don't think it's very surprising that they're relying on that race as as part of their decision-making process, given how little else they know about the juror.
0: Yeah. Well, you make a good point in saying you can't really tell what was intended, but you can, I think from your other findings, you're saying that you can see the effect.
2: Yeah, that's right. This is This is research that focuses on the effect both on jury performance and on community connection to the criminal justice process.
0: Right. And those two things do seem to change. So here we are. We've got uh, we've got some very significant findings. Uh, what do you think can be done? What would you like to see happen? I mean, some people will turn right around and say, well, you got to abolish the jury. It's it's the, the jury system is all wrong. And it's, you know, it's racially exclusionary. And so forth. But that would sort of cut directly at that first important value of participation. So uh, if we don't abolish juries, uh, what would we do? Would we abolish pre- peremptory challenges?
2: well you're you're right that abolishing jurors is not the direction I would want to go in. I'm a big fan of the jury system and it's uh it's democratizing effect on on the criminal courts abolishing peremptory challenges that's something that gets discussed every so often uh it, it hasn't become the law very very in very many places very often I think lawyers are very committed to their uh input into the into the you know, composition of the jury. So it's a it's a big ask in political terms to imagine actually abolishing peremptory challenges. But if if it were realistic, that could work. I think um, you could also uh, strengthen the the standards that we use for uh, for telling. Uh, attorneys that they can't use race as part of their selection process. So you could supercharge the Batson standard. Uh, Washington State has put out a very interesting rule of criminal procedure that makes it a lot easier for a, a judge to grant a Batson motion. Uh, so something like the Washington State rule might be, uh, might be a way of going. Uh, but you could also take this outside the courtroom and just say this is not going to be a litigation process. We're just going to publish the data about patterns of jury selection and let the, off, the public officials who do this explain what's going on.
0: Yeah. And, and I, 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 th- I gathered from uh, your writing that that was the direction you wanted to go. It is, um, it is difficult to see how lawyers would willingly give up. The idea of peremptory challenges, though, uh, there have been so many issues with them over the years. Episode 91, uh, we had a particularly interesting conversation with an attorney who was challenging what what she called the use of the O.J. Simpson question. Uh, in jury selection, lawyers would ask black jurors particularly, but white jurors also, what do they think of the outcome in the OJ case? And depending on their answers, the, the the lawyers might use peremptory challenges. So this whole system seems fraught, yet it is very hard to see how you get rid of peremptory challenges. Uh, so what are some of those potential ways of of getting at this? Uh, through non-litigation means. Uh, You mentioned transparency. Talk a little bit more about that.
2: I'm just trying to imagine a world where the clerk of the court on a routine, maybe quarterly basis, just posts on the website for the local courts These are the juries that were selected during the past quarter in our courtroom, and these are the – you wouldn't name names, but you would say these are the characteristics of the jurors who were dismissed and the jurors who served. Uh, You can keep track of all kinds of, of characteristics, not just race, not just gender or age, but a handful of other things. Uh, And you just have this, you know, quarterly report and then newspapers, other journalists just look at the report and keep track of how their local officials are doing and maybe compare how the prosecutor in your county is doing compared to the prosecutor elsewhere in the state, maybe across the state or next door. And if they're doing something meaningfully different, you'd say, hey, how come you're excluding African-American jurors at such a higher rate than the, you know, than your counterpart over in the next county?
0: You know, that sort of thing can be very, very powerful when taken seriously. I can remember still uh, so many years ago, my first job out of law school, I clerked for a judge. And uh, this was in the federal court system. It was uh, a federal district court. And at that time, and this is some years ago, uh, the uh, administrative office used to track how long various kinds of matters would sit in front of a judge without a decision. And I remember my judge being Quite attentive to that and seeing, you know, who, who had how many matters that were sitting there. If we could get the public to pay attention the same way to the same kinds of information, uh, it does strike me that that could be a tool. It might even be useful in elections.
2: Yeah, I can imagine a a challenger to a local judge who's up for election or a local prosecutor saying, I've been noticing in the local, you know, jury selection reports that our county is an outlier. We're not doing things nearly as well as our neighbors. You know, I think I can do better than the incumbent. So it could become a a basis for debate uh, during election season about what we expect of our public servants.
0: And with more and more attention being paid to prosecutors elections in this country, it does seem like the time has come for something like that. But before I let you go, I want to ask you one other thing. Uh, I can't resist this because you're not only involved in uh, researching juries, but like I said in the introduction, you've been doing uh, pathbreaking research uh, in the field of prosecution for a long, long time. Time And just a couple of months ago, you and King County, Washington, prosecutor Dan Satterberg, uh, you guys put together a very interesting sort of white paper for the Institute for Innovative Prosecution called, quote, prosecution that earns community trust. Uh, I read this and I'd like I'd like uh, you to have a chance to tell everybody why you think prosecutors need to earn community trust and what they should do to go about that.
2: Well, there are a few reasons uh, why they need to earn community trust. One of them is just the practical question of how do you prove a case? If there's some serious crime, some serious violent crime that's happened, and you have witnesses in the community and they don't trust your office and don't want to come forward, then it's going to be tough to win your cases. So you you do need some buy-in from the community who ultimately will be your source of proof for a lot of your serious cases. Uh, It also contributes to public safety. If the the ultimate job of the prosecutor is the public safety officer, you know, they're there to do what they can to promote actual public safety and perceived public safety, then if everybody is alienated from the prosecutor's office and from the court system, they're just not going to be open to the idea that public safety is improving even when the numbers suggest that, that they are.
0: Right. So, what does a prosecutor do to earn that community trust? What are your suggestions?
2: Uh, some of it is just reaching out by way of communication. Just you know, showing your work. That is, here's love what we're that. doing in the office. Just like and, seventh you know, grade like math. The, yeah. Yeah, like the math teacher used to tell us, show your work. Mm-hmm. So. You know, just report more to the public about what you're doing. And then as far as what you are actually doing, prioritize cases so that you treat the little stuff like little stuff and you treat the big stuff like big stuff. And you get hopefully higher clearance rates and, you know, successful prosecutions in the uh, very serious, you know, biggest threats to public safety. But then you also... You know, re- respond proportionally when you've got smaller crimes. Don't use the full weight of the law, the criminal law, and the incarceration system. Every time the law allows it, you try to have a sense of proportion about when that's needed.
0: Professor Ron Wright of Wake Forest School of Law, along with his colleagues, Professors Cammie Chavis and Gregory Parks, he's created the Jury Sunshine Project. Thanks for being with me to look at it again on criminal injustice.
2: Been a pleasure. Thanks David.
0: Let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, TMZ, the ABA Journal News Online, basically everywhere, concerns big-time New York lawyer Gordon Kaplan, co-chairman of the behemoth global law firm, Wilkie Farr & Gallagher. On March 12th, 2019, a big story broke in the United States. A bunch of very wealthy parents had been paying big money in bribes to get their less than qualified children into elite colleges like Yale Georgetown and the University of Southern California. Using a bogus college prep and counseling service, their money bought corrupt SAT proctors who changed scores, spots on athletic teams engaged in sports that these kids had never played, you name it. If you had the money, you could get your kid in. And the story really took off when among those arrested on federal charges were Hollywood stars like Lori Laughlin, of Full House. Aunt Becky, right? And Felicity Huffman of Desperate Housewives. So why are we talking about this here? Has lawyer behaving badly Gordon Kaplan been retained to represent one of these stars and behave badly while doing so? Well, no. Lawyer Kaplan is one of the wealthy and influential parents alleged to have paid that big money himself to get his offspring a place in one of those highly competitive colleges. He's been charged along with the stars, the hedge fund types and so many others. Now, I gotta say, Lawyer Kaplan has only been charged. He, like all the others, is presumed innocent, and nothing I'm saying here should be understood to the contrary. But it is our civic duty here on Lawyers Behaving Badly to tell you, our loyal listeners, what has shown up on wiretaps on which Lawyer Kaplan was recorded talking to William Singer, the guy running this enormous admissions scam, who was caught and turned State's evidence. According to the New York Times, Singer explained the scheme to lawyer Kaplan, who ultimately paid $75,000. Kaplan's response, quote, and it works? Singer says, quote, Every time, he tells Kaplan that his teenager would never know. Singer says, quote, nobody knows what happens. She feels great about herself. She got a test score and now you're actually capable for help getting into a school. Because the test score is no longer an issue. Does that make sense? Kaplan, that does. In a portion of the wiretapped conversation quoted by the Washington Post, lawyer Kaplan turns to consequences, not for those students who have their places taken by the unqualified kids of the wealthy, but for, well, himself. Quote, if somebody catches this, what happens? Singer, the only one who can catch it is if you guys tell somebody. Kaplan, I'm not going to tell anybody. According to the transcript, much laughter ensued. Yes, so hilarious, that wiretapped conversation. I'm sure it will make quite a hilarious impression on the jury if the case goes to trial. Now again... Only allegations, innocent until proven guilty. In the meantime, the ABA Journal reports that Wilkie Farr has placed Lawyer Kaplan on leave of absence and he has been relieved of his global managing partner duties. We'll keep an eye on this one for you because we know you'll want to know what happens to Lawyer Kaplan. Oh, come on, who are we kidding? You want to know what happens to Lori and Felicity Huffman. Well, we're going to follow it. Just the same. That is lawyers behaving badly. And that closes another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already. And share us all over social media. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Why don't you call in? Ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389 and leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also give us some contact information, but we won't share that. Again, that number, 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I am David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rawlerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com.